This is A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller. It's the first of a five-part series of programmes from the Starmus Science and Art Festival in Zurich, produced in collaboration with Kaspersky. Today we'll meet Charlie Duke, Lunar Module Pilot on Apollo 16, who'll confirm that motoring on the moon actually is about as much fun as it looks. John was speeding down the mountains and we were bouncing up and down. Look out, John, and he'd do a spin around a rock or you go over a crater, and we didn't know what was over there. And we'll hear from Garrick Israelian, astrophysicist and founder of the Starmus Festival, who'll tell us what it was like persuading the most famous man in modern history to speak at the first Starmus in 2011, and how you manage the public relations when it turns out nobody believes you. Announcing Neil Armstrong was played actually negative role because people thought that we are completely crazy. <laughs> this is the first festival and we desperately need sponsors and people to sign up so we are announcing Neil Armstrong. That's all to come on A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller. And first up today, I'm joined by Charlie Duke, lunar module pilot of Apollo 16, the tenth of just 12 people who have walked on the moon and one of even fewer to have driven on it. Um, thank you for joining us. The first thing I wanted to ask is just I'm curious about how different the world must look to those of you who've left it on those occasions when you come together again and there's there's just a bunch of astronauts what what do you talk about amongst yourselves well uh, you know when we first did it many years ago uh it was quite a, a popular theme what was your impression things like that there are only 24 of us have seen the whole circle mm. of the earth millions billions of people have seen the photographs we took of the circle of the earth but the photographs cannot capture the drama and the emotion that one sees when you see the, uh, this beautiful Earth just suspended in the blackness of space. Our view from about uh, 30,000 kilometers was the Arctic Circle down across Canada, the United States, Mexico, and Central America. And the west coast of South uh, California was clear, and you could see the Rocky Mountains and all of the southwest United States. And it was all brown. The snow and the clouds were pure white in the ocean. The Pacific and the Gulf of Mexico was just crystal blue, and that jewel was just suspended in the blackness of space. It was breathtaking. Were you and the other astronauts surprised by those moments of epiphany at seeing the world like that? Had you thought in advance about what that might feel like, or was it one of those things where you were just so focused on completing the mission, getting there and getting back in one piece that you hadn't thought about whether it might have an impact beyond that? Well, of course, I'd seen the photographs at Apollo mm. 11 and 12 and all of them had taken, but the photographs do not capture the emotion that one has when you see it for the first time. So I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was uh, transfixed by it, but it was a breathtaking. You know, I'm seeing the earth that only very few people have seen uh, in history. Mm. And so that was a very significant moment. I didn't dwell on it very long because we were busy docking with the lunar module and stuff like that, but it's, it floated under my window. I got the chance just to look out and uh, see that 
beautiful Earth. This has been said a lot about the Apollo programs. That they, they did galvanise, I guess, a sense of collective enterprise and collective accomplishment in humanity that all the world's peoples could look up and see, well, a small select grouping of us accomplished this monumental thing. Was that something that you felt at the time about Apollo, that you were, you were acting on behalf of uh, an uplifting enterprise for humanity? Or was it, again, just thinking we have here a bunch of extremely complicated problems to solve and that's what we're focusing on? Somewhere in between that. <laughs> uh, I was just focused on my job and the, uh, the techniques and the knowledge that we needed to do complete our, our mission. And uh, I think everybody, at least on the crew and in mission control, had the idea if this thing fails, it's not going to be my fault. <laughs> so you were really focused on doing your job. And uh, so as I look back on it, it wasn't spiritual. It wasn't philosophical adventure. It was a, a, an experience for me. It was an adventure and a, uh, a technical challenge to finish this mission and get to do everything that you had planned to do. So our focus was the operation side of but enjoying it while we were there. John and I had trained in, uh, in, uh, with humor in our training because training was very arduous. And so we tried to break the tensions. And so the, we decided on the moon we'd have the same experience, that we would continue just like we were in training. And if you listen to our transcripts back uh, while we were on the surface, we just were having a lot of fun. But the focus was to get the job completed. And so I didn't sit there on a stand on the moon and ponder the origins of the universe or anything <laughs> like that. It was just, let's do the job and enjoy it. It was beautiful. I mean, it was not mesmerizing, but it was certainly one of the most uh, magnificent deserts I'd ever seen in my life, untouched, unspoiled. And I kept having this, this feeling, nobody's ever been here before. And these steps are the first steps in the Descartes Highlands ever. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the idea of it being fun because I wasn't, I wasn't sure how to bring that up in what was obviously the context of a very serious, difficult and dangerous mission. But was there a part of you when you were, for example, driving around the moon on the lunar rover that was basically just thinking Yahoo? Exactly. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I use fantastic and Yahoo a lot. And, uh, I didn't drive the rover. Uh, John was the driver. Uh, my job was to navigate and to take pictures every 50 meters and to describe the terrain that we were going over because underway you didn't have any TV. And so my job was to, to be the travel guide, but my <laughs> travel group was in Houston. And so I was describing all of this uh, terrain. Uh, and we were having, uh, John was speeding down the mountains and we were bouncing up and down. Look out, John. And he'd do a U-turn around, or not a U-turn, but a a spin around a rock or you go over a crater and we didn't know what was over there and as you went over you might have a big crater or a rock or something in front of you and uh, so it was fun and bounce the, the rover was really fun to be on. You spoke earlier about being a, a bit reluctant to to ponder I guess the, the the philosophical unquantifiables while attempting to do your job and, and I know it's something people have looked for a lot, I think, in the astronauts who went to the moon and came back, that did you, between you, figure out something the rest of us haven't figured out? And I know you, of course, became a Christian in 1978, I think, if I recall rightly, after returning from the moon or some years after returning from the moon. Did the experience of going there, coming back, seeing the Earth by itself, hanging in space, did any part of that 
changed the way you, you looked at the universe? Uh, not at the time. Jim Irwin was a committed Christian when he went. He quoted scripture on his room. Apollo 8, the first TV show from the moon as they, on Christmas Eve, they quoted from Genesis. They read from Genesis. Uh, Buzz Aldrin had a commun- Christian communion on the moon. So there was some spiritual side of some of these flights. But in my case, in John's case, it wasn't. Uh, it was a... I guess when I got back, a lot of us had this problem of, well, I'm 36 years old, I've climbed to the top of my ladder, uh, and uh, things ought to be uh, great, but but I had this no peace. There was a drive in my side. What are you going to do now with the rest of your life? And unfortunately, like a lot of us, we started having marriage problems. It was uh, very difficult on the families, and so my wife was uh, and I were in uh, serious trouble uh, marriage-wise. And so three years later, uh, we realized that something's got to, she realized something's got to happen. And, well, she said, I tried everything but God. I said, God, if you're real, I give you my life. If you're not, I give up. I want to die. Well, I watched her change in two months. And two and a half years later, after we'd left NASA, uh, I had a similar experience uh, where I realized, you know, this is a really true. And so I said, Lord, I give you my life. And that gave me peace for the very first time. And it gave me a, a more wonderful perspective of the universe. Well, just a final question then, and it, it goes back to the events of 50 years ago next month when you, you briefly had, I think, what must have been the most famous speaking voice in the world as Capcom talking to Apollo 11. Listening to it again, which I, which I did a few days ago, you do sound actually, I think, remarkably calm. And I, I did want to ask, did you know how tight the fuel situation was with the Eagle Lander? We did. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, first off, uh, we had some real problems with the computer, computer overloads. And when I saw those alarms, I said, well, we're dead in the water, we got to report. But the mission control team, the flight controller that was in charge of the computer knew, we're go flight. And so I hollered, we're go. But that started raising the tension in mission control. So by the time we got down to the last three, 400 feet, 100 meters or so, we were getting very low on fuel. We had a reserve of 4%, if I recall. And so when we got, as we approached that 4% reserve, we would allow the crew to know, okay, you got 60 seconds to land. Then I called 30 seconds to land, uh, and they still weren't on the ground, but they were close. And uh, 13 seconds later, I heard Buzz Aldrin say, contact engine stop. And so, and you can imagine the tension in mission control at that point. I, I don't think I can. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I've been in mission control, Apollo 10, there for 13, and 17 is back up. Never felt anything like this. Anyway, they were on the ground, and then I might sound calm, but I wasn't calm. I mean, it was holding your breath. And so when I, when Neil, I heard Neil say, Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed, I just gave this big sigh of relief, and I said, Roger, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. And that was the truth. <laughs> I mean, I didn't make that up. It was, you know, we've... It's a big sigh of relief, and it's like popping a balloon, you know, that's about to purse, and, and this tension just drained out of the room, and it was great elation. Charlie Duke of Apollo 16, thank you very much for joining us.
You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller, and I'm joined now by Garrick Israelian, astrophysicist and founder of the Starmus Festival. Garrick, this, this has grown into quite a thing in the eight years since the first one, but I, w- I want to go back to the first Starmus in 2011. Where did the idea come from? Well, the idea of Starmus was thanks to my friendship and with, with Brian May. So... In my life, music was probably more important than astronomy. I used to play in rock bands and so on when I was at the university. So, so you and you and Brian, there's the the, the parallel universes there. He, exactly. he's, so, he's the yeah. physicist who became yeah. a rock star, and you're the rock star fact, who became a physicist. When we were meeting, I was talking about music, and he was talking about astronomy. <laughs> so it was very interesting. So all the time, so we were sharing. I was with the opinion about albums of, of rock classics and prog rocks. So I was thinking, yeah, what, what do you think of how this happened and so on? And Brian was just moving into astronomy. Why this is happening? And so, <laughs> very interesting. But from these uh, discussions, the whole idea of Starmus started. And then, um, so we got a concert with Tangerine Dream. The Tangerine Dream with Brian Maystel. It was a very nice concert, but we did it because the production was small. But the festival is massive, amazing, with Neil Armstrong, with the best, only 300 people. I, I did want to ask about that, that first keynote speaker at the first 2011 Starmus, because if you're going to launch with a significant keynote speaker, yeah. Neil Actual Armstrong, yeah. who famously was not at all publicity hungry and didn't get out much, no. No. how do you go about making that pitch? How did you... How did you even ask Neil Armstrong and how did you persuade him to say yes? Yeah, we approached him like six, seven months before the festival and we never heard back. And then I arranged a letter from Alexei Leonov, the first spacewalker. Mm-hmm. And again, no news. And we knew that Armstrong is very private. So we were already like one month to the festival and suddenly I received an email from him personally, saying, oh, well, thank you very much for your invitation. I think we are going to accept it, so I will come with, your, with my wife. So well, that cannot be true. <laughs> that, that must coming. be a very strange moment right there, seeing in your email inbox. I was paralyzed. <laughs> I, I, and it happened in a moment when we were almost cancelled the festival because we didn't have funds. We were running out of money and we said, Jesus, what are we going to do? So Neil Armstrong just came in, and we, we had no funds. We couldn't even pay his trip. So <laughs> that was a disaster. So, and that was a moment when I said, whatever the cost, we're going to lend money, we're going to borrow money, but we have to bring Neil Armstrong. We have to do the festival because not every day you get Neil Armstrong saying yes. And then that's exactly what we did. And when we announced Neil Armstrong as a keynote speaker, so the interest to festival actually has dropped because people thought that we are so desperate that we we need people to sign up. That's why we are announcing Neil Armstrong, but he's actually not coming, of course, yeah. <laughs> and so it was even worse. So I wish we never announced Neil. So the, announcing Neil Armstrong played actually a negative role because people thought that we are completely crazy. This is the first <laughs> festival, and we desperately need sponsors and people to sign up, so we are announcing Neil Armstrong. And because Armstrong has no website, no social media, there is no way to find and, out and, if and he's and really I, coming. I, I guess it's that thing of the more you say, no, Neil Armstrong really is coming, the crazier people that, think that, you that, are. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so I was negative. I was really shocked by this because local media were making fun of the festival, saying that these guys are so desperate now. <laughs> they are already announcing Neil Armstrong. <laughs> but, 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 the, but the tsunami was coming in two weeks when Neil Armstrong actually came. When he arrived to Tenerife completely and no, uh, alone with his wife, no one was meeting him except us. 
at the airport, so no one would recognize Neil Armstrong. So we just took a taxi, <laughs> brought him to, a, to the hotel. And by the time we were traveling, the hotel management, they found out that it's really Neil Armstrong coming. I mean, how would you like to see Starmus evolve over coming years and decades? I mean, I guess the, the obvious end point to this would be actually staging some sort of concert on the moon. That would bring, <laughs> that, that would bring all the strands together nicely. I appreciate there's probably certain logistical difficulties, but falling short of that, how would you like to see this develop over the next, say, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I think what, what, how I can see Starmus is we seriously need to have patrons and serious companies to back the festival, mm. to join, especially the Stephen Hawking Medal. Once we have these minimum guarantees for the festival, once we have this minimum funding, we could immediately become, return from a producer to a non-profit foundation or something. Because one of the problems of Starmus is maybe a problem or maybe an advantage that we every time we want to push the limits. We have this, but we want to have more. And we don't look at the funds. We, say, we don't have money. It doesn't matter. Let's do it. Because if we don't do it, we will be very sorry tomorrow. We'll say, we had that chance, but we didn't use it. And why? Because it was a bit expensive. Yeah, but maybe tomorrow we will solve all these problems. But we will have that footage. And we will have this, that we have done these guys. So, we are, so this is the mentality the Starmus has, you know. Always push the limits, go try everything and so on, which is good which is what our sponsors like that because they see that there's a lot, lot of potential, a lot of energy and people believe, our lecturers, they love Starmus and musicians, they are just as a Starmus family. Garrick Israelian, thank you for joining us on A Giant Leap. That's it for this episode of A Giant Leap, produced by Monocle24 in collaboration with Kaspersky at the Starmus Festival in Zurich. We'll be back tomorrow with more from Starmus. To find out more about Kaspersky's mission of building a safer world, head to kaspersky.com. A Giant Leap is produced and edited by Bill Lutie and presented by me, Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening, and until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.